Rock Podcast, talking all things Disney, with your hosts, L. John Goh and Dave Bossert. Welcome to the show. Every week, we talk about all things Disney and pop culture with never-before-heard stories, behind-the-scenes moments from some of your favorite Disney films, theme park attractions, performances, books, music, and so much more. I'm your co-host, and happy, happy New Year. My name's Al John Go, musician, longtime Disney, Marvel, Star Wars fan, and pop culturist. And you can email me at aljohn at skullrockpodcast.com. And I'm Dave Bossard, artist, filmmaker, author, and welcome to Skull Rock Plus podcast. <laughs> uh, I'm it. just going to keep that going. I can't I love help it. myself. Right as well. If you, if you love Disney and pop culture, please subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform, as well as like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We're on all of those platforms. And you can also email me at Dave at skullrockpodcast.com. Well, Al John, I hope you had a good Christmas. I think it was kind of a loud Christmas for you, and I'm glad that you are safe and uh, you and Kristen and the kids are are all okay. But you were you were uh, you're in Nashville, yeah. And and what a wake up call on on Christmas morning, huh? Yeah. So we had we had this, um, you know, heard this loud bang. it, it was very loud. Uh, our neighborhood heard it. Our my my in laws heard it. It was about six thirty in the morning, and lo and behold, uh, you know, a whole block and a half, a couple blocks of our our downtown Second uh, Avenue district had been, you know, destroyed. And uh, I'm sure everyone has seen footage of that through all the news uh, coverage that it, it it gotten. But wow. So hats off to our first responders and people trying to make sure that our downtown area is safe. And hopefully, uh, yeah, and you know that the uh, the authorities will get down to the bottom of this uh, whole situation. But wow, not not what he expected and and uh, not how we expected to leave uh, 2020 moving into the new year. But, uh, you know, but other than that, yes, we are safe. And we spent uh, the Christmas holiday together as a family, and unfortunately, our, our we do use AT and T, and that that service was affected because our AT and T was uh, the 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 primary hub is right there, and so uh, our service was affected. So we had some Zoom and some other calls scheduled, you know, with the family. So we had to postpone all those those plans because we couldn't get in touch with everybody. Everything we had was AT and T. So yeah, I, I heard that the 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 cell coverage was down not only in the Nashville area for AT and T, but into parts of Kentucky and sort of the greater uh, Tennessee area. Yeah. Uh, so that that that's kind of craziness. Did you feel Did you feel it at all? Did yeah. the house shake or nope. anything? You you were far enough away that the house didn't shake. Right, right. But the the only thing up at six thirty in the morning here are the roosters and the cows, uh, where yeah. we are. And so you could you know, you could hear it. And you're like, what is that? Do you just write it off? And you're like, oh, it's just, you know, someone doing something outside or whatever. It's the country in Tennessee. Yeah, yeah. So it could be whatever. But wow, lo and behold, you, you turn on the news and bam, there it is. And wow, you know, that's all I can say is just wow and and we're very ha- we're very glad that no one else had some you know severe injuries or whatever. So, 
like I said, it's just uh, what a way to just, uh, you know, leave 2020 in this really bizarre year that we've had moving into 2021. But, you know, I hope you yeah, guys had I mean, a good Christmas, though, Dave. Yeah, we did have a good Christmas. But I have to say, Al John, I, I was up early on Christmas morning and um, I was uh, immediately aware of what had happened in Nashville. And I was thinking of you guys, um, you know, and sent you the note on Facebook. Um, I, I knew you weren't in the downtown area, so I knew you were pretty safe. But yeah. still, Really uh, incredible work by the uh, by the police officers who who uh, started to evacuate and wake people in those apartments in the area, and the fact that there really hasn't been any loss of life from that explosion, other than potentially the person who may have been in the RV. Mm-hmm. They don't know yet. They're still doing all that investigating. Yeah. But uh, wow. Uh, so, uh, I mean, other than that, it was a really pleasant Christmas weekend, I have yeah. to say. Well, it was very good. relaxed. Uh, we watched a lot of uh, Christmas movies. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, you know, we watched Home Alone as a family. We actually watched some of the Die Hard movies. Oh, the, you know what? <laughs> That's the best, right? So not only did you, yeah, Kristen and I do watch Home Alone. We watch the Santa Claus. We watch the stuff on Disney Plus. But a, a, in terms of non-traditional Christmas movies, yes, Die Hard is on the list. And so is Gremlins. Gremlins is also on the yeah, list. Yeah, yeah. You know? And the, and the uh, National Lampoon uh, vacation, uh, Christmas vacation. Christmas vacation. Yeah, so. That's right. Uh, but yeah, it was it was all about just uh, watching uh, some uh, some fun movies and, and just spending time as a family. Did you, uh, yeah. Did you catch Soul? I did not watch that yet. Oh. I, I will probably have watched it by the time we record our next show. Okay, well. Did you watch the it? wife and I? We, we we saw it last night, mm-hmm. and let me say, wow! I mean, that's all I can say is wow. So you're going to see another a movie. Pixar hit. Another yeah, Pixar I feel, hit. I feel that way because it 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 really is. And, and this is you know, uh, puns aside, this movie has soul. It has a heart, <laughs> and as a musician, I can relate to a lot of the themes, but I think it'll really relate. Uh, everyone can relate to uh, what is it like to live a, a life that has meaning or purpose or seeking your, your meaning and purpose. And, and um, I think it will strike a lot of heartstrings and, and, and really have people looking at things in a new way. And I know I, I feel that way and I struggle, I struggle with it. Um, you know, looking at this movie and going, how can I live my life better? And uh, it's something that I, I I feel after watching this movie, I really need to to take that in and and uh, and 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 make some adjustments. You know, just because it just causes you to think. And I think that's a really great thing about these type of movies. When when Pixar makes these movies, as an adult, I as Going into it, looking at it from a child's perspective or just a inter- pure entertainment aspect, I am entertained. I, I, I'm very entertained. I love the, the cinematography and the, the art behind it, the story, the music, of course. But then when I look and, and I finish the movie, I sit back and, and think about these these questions that they pose. Wow. That's where I feel like the movie is undeniable. When you can sit back and, and look at your life and and, and, and and just examine it 
for what it is and, and the questions it poses to the viewer. It's amazing. So let me well, know what I'm you looking think. For, I'm looking forward to seeing it. But, hey, talking about soul. Yes. Let's talk about an artistic soul yes. that we have coming up as our special special guest, Mike Gabriel. Um, I think, I, I got to tell you, he's really one of the most talented uh, artists in the industry that, that I've worked with uh, over the decades. I mean, he's such a multifaceted artist and I am really looking forward to not only introducing him to you, but also just pulling some of his stories out, having, you know, he's a great storyteller and he's going to tell us, I think some, some amazing stories. And I'm really looking forward to that. And, and I almost feel like we should just get to it. Let's do it. What do you it. think? Yeah. Let's, let's just get to it. Let's hit the button. Podcast interview time. Well, Al John, I got to tell you, we have an incredible guest with us today. Uh, I've worked, I've had the pleasure of working with him for well over 30 years, and I got to tell you, this is a guy who has done it all. I mean, you know, he is one of the most talented people in the animation industry today. He was an animator. He was a director, a creative director, a visual uh, development artist, uh, production designer, art director. I mean, it just goes on and on. I mean, what this guy has done is the body of work is incredible. And I will tell our audience today, we will not be able to cover it all. So we're going to talk to Mike Gabriel, our special guest, because he was one of the directors of Rescuers Down Under, which is celebrating its 30th anniversary this year. And by the way, I would also point out that Mike also was the guy who pitched and co-directed Pocahontas, which is also celebrating a 25th anniversary this year. Am I correct on that, Mike? Yep, that's right. So, Mike, welcome, welcome to our show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. I'm excited. It, it, it's fantastic to have you. And it, it, it's like I said, you know, we can't possibly cover your entire career uh, because you've just done so much. But what I wanted to start with, and I know our audience is going to love, is how you got hired at Disney. And this is, folks, this is such an incredibly inspiring story that I think most people who are, you know, if you're starting out in the business, you got to listen to this story. Mike, I, I'm going to turn it over to you because this is a great story. Well, it, it is incredible. And now I'm just, uh, just retiring now. So I'm, I'm kind of doing a lot of looking back on my career and how did I ever get to Disney in the first place? And what was my beginning? It, did my dream really come true? Did I really do it? Or was it all a, just some sort of a strange uh, dream? But uh, because I'm, I was one of those little guys at five years old, I had seen Pinocchio um, and the theater and I just was swept up in the whole Disney uh, look and feel and the, the magic of animation. And, and so believe it or not, five years old, I decided, I, I told my mom and I remember telling my mom, I want to be a Disney artist. And she's, she described to me when I was that young, how, well, they all draw the character and it's all from different angles. And so you got to really learn. And I'm thinking, you mean there are a lot of guys that draw that well and they can draw it? draw Pinocchio from all those different angles. So I just got swept up in the concept of 
how in the hell can anyone be that talented? So I just set my little laser beam at five years old. That's what I'm going to do. I was living in Salina, Kansas. Uh, my dad was stationed there in an Air Force Base, Schilling Air Force Base. So I'm in the middle of the country, Kansas, although in hindsight, it's kind of Walt Disney country, that Midwest, you know, next to Missouri and Kansas City and not far from where Walt grew up, actually. Um, so maybe that's why my sensibility has always sort of linked in pretty closely. People always said, no, you've kind of got the Disney, you know, sort of feeling to your stuff. But anyway, I wanted to get to Disney. So all through my grad, all through my uh, grammar school years, I was always the artist in the class and I want to work at Disney. So that was my dream to get into Disney. About high school years, I think I was about 15 or 16, my early high school years, I started writing to the studio. We had since my dad had uh, retired from the Air Force and we moved to Huntington Beach, California, which is, you know, a good hour and a half, uh, two-hour commute drive to, to the studio where Walt Disney Studios was. Um, it's not at Disneyland. And uh, <laughs> so, so we went to, so I just started writing to the studio, asking them, sending my little drawings. I would cut out these cartoon characters and tape them on a sheet and Xerox them and send them to the studio. And those beautiful yellow, orangey yellow envelopes would come back with Mickey on the envelope that said Walt Disney Studios. They're going to love my stuff. They're going to, they're going to want me to work for them. And I'm like 16 at the time. And then and I open the envelope and they just have this nice little short letter. Thank you, Mike, for writing. Very nice. But just saying you need to keep doing anatomy drawings, draw from real life. Don't do cartoons. Don't send us cartoons. We'll teach you that when you get here. So I, okay. So disappointed. And I was like, just crestfallen. But I'd worked for another year, maybe doing my anatomy drawings and trying to get do what they wanted. And then I would cut out more cartoon drawings and send them cartoon drawings when I'm 17, 18. Every time I would send them the, the, the uh, sort of my my new art, it was Ed, Ed Hansen was the guy sending it back. And uh, and he would send it back and say, Mike, just remember, you got to learn the basics. Learn how to, to draw human anatomy, animal anatomy. So you got it. You can't. Don't worry about the cartoon stuff. Stop sending the cartoon stuff. We and we're going to start up Cal Arts soon, so we want you to you know consider that. That's a great place to learn to, to to start your entry into the studio. So anyway, all I ever heard was sort of blah 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 blah. Till about the fourth time I wrote, and they sent back the same thing saying learn to draw. I just said okay, I'm never getting in unless I learn. I'm going to do what they keep telling me to do. So I went to the school library actually it was the city library and stacked up all the art books in the art department, at least the major anatomy ones, you know, Bern Hogarth or Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, any of the famous, you know, just great uh, anatomy artists. And I, I'm telling you, it was a stack on my desk that high. And I took every book from the top and just went page by page and drew it. And I drew it and I just drew every page. And I mean, if it was an arm being dissected with the muscle, I would draw mm -hmm. that. If, and the hand, every hand drawing that Da Vinci or, or Hogarth or, uh, uh, and it, believe it or not, the uh, Mybridge books, if anyone knows the action analysis books, where every pose of every human or a, a child, an adult, a woman, a, a, an elder, or a uh, horse or a goat, anything that's moving, he would capture those frames of just one slight little leg difference in each shot. Well, I drew every single frame of every single book that he did. And I just was going to keep doing that and draw, draw, draw. I would even take 
every magazine that came in the house, Time Magazine, and I would draw the hand on every photo, just draw that hand. So I committed to committed to drawing my brains out for six hours a day. My, my parents will tell you, six hours a day, I was up in my room. I had made a huge desk and I just, and I shellacked it when I was a surfer from Huntington Beach. So I took my resin and shellacked this big desk and I would draw on that desk all day long. And I just was determined. So I saw small one came out. And when I saw small one come out, came out, I just thought, I don't care. I think I'm good enough to get in. I think I can make it now. So I, at the time I was doing these airline uh, car, the safety cards where you, where it's just those fold out plastic flaps, but it has yeah. little red arrows and people grabbing a red handle and cranking it and stuff like that. That was my job to paint the cells with the little red arrow. And so, and it was menial labor, but you know, I just was sitting there and I saw the, the, the pamphlet that said they're looking for artists again. I go, well, I'm going to call up. So I called up and said, I think I'm ready. Uh, I'd like to come in for an interview. I think I'm, I've got what you're looking for. And the, the, the guy that uh, is the guy that you go see is called Donald Duckwall, believe it or not. So you go meet Donald Duckwall at Disney Studios. And of course, everybody in my family, I have 10 siblings, everyone in my family, I was like John Boy Walton, you know, I was wanted to be a writer. So I'm, I'm John Boy Walton finally gets his shot at going to Disney Studios after probably another four years. So I was around 20, I was, at that time I was 23 years old. So I'm, I've been doing it for four years, you know, after high school, just hitting those art books. And now I've got my portfolio. I bought a big, huge portfolio, put on the coat and tie. It's about 120 degrees in the valley out here. So I go to the, you know, the big city, LA and across the valley and I go to the studio and, you know, I can almost hear a choir of angels as I walk into the gate, you know, <laughs> and there's the animation building. And, and here I'm carrying my, my beautiful, my artwork I've worked so hard on and all these art sketch pads of, my bridge, you know, 500 little horses and walk, a bird flapping and all this stuff. So I'm coming in with my artwork and uh, I could just hear the laughter in the hallways. I could hear the artists, these young voices kind of laughing and horsing around. And I'm just the shiny floors. And I'm like, you could just smell the talent in this building, the famous animation building, Walt Disney Studios. So and I'm going up to see Donald Duckwall and just, this is the dream, baby. This is the dream. So I went into his office on the second floor and uh, nice guy, you know, typically you'd expect from a Disney, he was like right off a Disney set, but with the little cardigan sweater and kind of handsome young uh, elder guy with gray hair. And he just took, came in, yeah, let me take a look, Mike, let me look at your stuff. So zoop, took out my artwork, started going through it. And he, he noticed, yeah, I had some talent and I had some paintings I had done. And he said, wow, boy, maybe you want to be in the uh, background department, son. I go, no, no, sir. I, I really want to be an animator. I, I want to be an animator. So goes, well, what you want to do is get some silhouettes, you know, better, clear silhouettes of action that you really read the pose. And he starts describing what they like in an animator sketch pad, you know, what they're looking for. So, and this is about half an hour into the meeting, and I just start to melt because I realize he's saying, now when you su submit your next art, when you come in, I'm just going, I'm not in. I'm not in. I'm not in. I'm not in. I can't believe this. I've killed myself for five years. I've got, you know, these amazing, at least determination, if not talent in the, in the art. So anyway, he just said, well, you, you, you go uh, try to capture some action in your poses, get some, get some motion in your drawings and really feel the motion. Why, you know, go draw from real life and 
we really can't show art drawn from books, you know. So you've gotten these Da Vinci drawings and Rodin, all that. Don't we can't really show that to our review board. So uh, go, keep keep trying, and uh, we'll we'll see. I, so I remember stopping at his door, at his office door. I was so disappointed, but I said, "I'm going to give you what you're looking for." And he goes, I, "I know you will, son. I know you will. Come, you know, sure, you bet." So that night, I went back to, I went home and believe me, I had to face everybody just going, you're in. And I go, not in. <laughs> Did not get in. No, it was horrifying. So they all knew what it meant to me. And so that, that weekend, that was on a Friday, that weekend, I, I just did everything that Don Duckwell told me to do. Get the silhouette, watch golfers on the golf, capture the swing of a golf club. Get go. I went to the beach, got my brothers throwing frisbee, jumping, leaping, just trying to get the essence of motion in the in the drawings. I even ran around a basketball court that night with my brother Tom. Um, he was young, little uh, Tom and Bob, actually two brothers. And as they're making the moves, I'm running with them, trying to capture, <laughs> trying to capture that action, the action, the action, the feeling of motion. So I just drew at that whole weekend. And just on a little pad, you know, I had this giant portfolio for my first thing. Now I've got a little pad of these sketches that I'm doing as I'm running around. So I just sent in these little things of sketches, a little packet really of my loose sketches, sent them in on Monday. So had the interview on Friday, drew on the weekend and sent the new drawings in on Monday. So, okay, I'm waiting. It's Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Haven't heard anything. Well, not sure they would have gotten there by then. Wednesday, mm, nothing. Okay. Thursday, this isn't good. I think I would have heard at least if they liked him by Thursday. So Friday, I, I'm believing deep down, I'm kind of shy and don't not too pushy. So I even let Friday come around and just go, well, I hate to I hate to kind of be a, a, annoying. I don't want a, a nuisance, right? So I called up, I called up Ed Hansen and I uh, said, Ed, uh, I sent some drawings in on Monday. I haven't, haven't heard back. I was, he's like, Mike, Mike, we've all been looking for you. We love your new sketches. That's exactly what we were looking for. We showed it to the nine old men and uh, Glenn Keynes there, and they loved your sketches. So you're going to be starting. We want you to start in two weeks with Eric Larson being your mentor, and you're going to come in and you're going to, I'm like, from, from zero to a hundred. From zero, zero to, to a hero. Zero to zero hero. Zero. Oh my God. <laughs> I've never felt a greater relation. And I went running down to my parents and my dad was in the, uh, in the kitchen. And I told, I said, I got it. I'm in, I'm in. And he gave me an actual slap on the back. He said, great, great, Mike. I'm so happy for you. It was like the pat on the back from your dad. Now, the, the one thing I want to uh, mention to the audience here, you didn't go to art school. No. I You're never, all self, you are self-taught. Wow. You never went to college. And believe it or not, I was so stupid. I didn't need, I was given the uh, pamphlet. They, the studio did mail me eventually, you know, because I've been annoying them for four years. And they did eventually mail me the pamphlet to Cal Arts when it was the first year. I would right. have started with Lassiter and John Musker and, you know, yeah. Gary Reese and the first Henry Selick and Tim Burton was the next year. But um, I would have been starting with this bunch of, you know, supreme talents of the animation industry. So I would have grown better. I would have gotten, you know, gone further, I think. But anyway, I, I just didn't want to do, I didn't want to go to college. I wanted to go to Disney Studios. So sure. I can be very, as Dave knows, I can be somewhat creatively stubborn. And I just was going to do it my way. I'll do it my way. I'll learn myself. So that's why I got the books. That's why I'll do it with my, I don't need an instructor to tell me. So I'm passing up the opportunity to work with Bill Moore, you know, and TV and great Disney. Elmer Plumber. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Plumber. And O'Connor. So, 
Yeah. And all those guys that went to CalArts just knew stuff. When I went to the studio and I, I quickly bonded with them, they, they all took me under their wing and I just kind of became a pal quick with them. And I just could see they had stuff in their head that they learned from those masters that I had to pick up from them. So yeah, anyway, but I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, though, you probably learned it all in six months at the Disney Studios. I did. I, that's I what I often tell people is that, you know, you can spend three or four years in art school. That's true. And when you get into a studio setting, you learn more in six months that's or true. a year than you did the entire time you were at art school. Because just look at the caliber of artists you're working with alongside. I mean, you're just... You're there just, and you're a fan, so you're loving mm -hmm. what they're doing, You're and you want to be able to do what they're doing. Yeah, all, my 41 years at the studio, I was always, that was the best part of the job, is looking at the art that the guy in the room next to, or the girl, Brittany Lee and Mount yeah. Lorelei, and, you know. What a, yeah, what a what a proving ground for you. And not oh, only that, I mean, you, you got to work with, uh, you know, at least the nine old men that were still around, and you had uh, yeah. uh, Eric Larson to, to be your mentor. I mean, what was that like? Oh, it was just, uh, it was beyond perfection as far as what you would hope it would be like as going into Disney, the, the warmth, you know, of the man, the, the, the class, the elegance, the demeanor and the kindness and the, you know, just, he, he makes Walt Disney look like an ogre. That's how sweet he was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's really exactly. good to hear. Yeah. And, and he was, he was one of the, the, the last ones work and one, one of the last nine old men who was actually working at the studio. Yeah, he was. Uh, because the rest of the guys, I mean, John Lounsbury had passed away in the early seventies and then you had uh, Frank and Ollie were starting to write books and, yep. uh, and, and were sort of drifting into retirement, if you will, you we know, get a lecture from them, a few lectures from Frank and Ollie and certainly a lot from Eric and Eric was in the room right next to me. Algernon. So wow. I would come in in the morning and, and because I was coming commuting from Huntington Beach for the first six months. So I would get on the road at 430 ish in the morning and oh. get to the studio right before the sun is breaking the horizon. I'd be the first guy in the building. Of course, I was that excited to be doing this. And I wanted to make sure you had to do a test for the first month and a test on the second month. And those tests had to tell the, the review board that you had enough talent to stay. So you weren't fully in until that second month. But in my mind, and it seemed like everything was going well, so I, I never really was too freaked about that test getting a, a pass. Well, it was a probationary period. It was a little bit of a probation. But yeah. there, there's Eric right in the room next to you. You just go in and, you know, he's got the great Disney director desk, all this stuff oh. that Dave knows so well. Which, by the way, I would point out that you have right behind you. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I love it. The director's desk. I love the, the desk. The director's desk. Right. Yeah. And um, I've got the animation the, desk over here. That's fantastic. Uh, so this is what, 1980? This is 1980. Yeah. 79, really, when I got in. And uh, I started October 1st, uh, 1979. Now, when so did the, when, the end of the 70s? When did they actually uh, put you on to production? After the first two tests, uh, Dave Block, animator, he was an animator there, and he requested me for an in-betweener as to be his rough in-betweener. So I went right on to Fox and the Hound and started uh, started doing in-betweens for Dave and really just having to learn. And uh, Walt Stanchfield would teach uh, in-betweening to some to the young people like me. So he, we would take some of Milt's uh, animation from Aristocats, the old the old guy with the top hat and the cane. Mm -hmm. I still remember him tapping the top of his hat with his cane and that great face, doing his overlap on the old man's hair, you know, and learning how to, how you reverse that and make it flow. 
So uh, you learn as you were there, but it was basically uh, in between for Dave Block. And then Dave started giving me little details to do. And he, he quickly started giving me little bits of animation, like uh, the fox, the, when they were little, no, it was uh, the, the, the little puppy, uh, uh, what's his dog's name? Uh, oh, uh, uh, cop, copper. Yeah, copper. Cop, copper. I've been in about 60 movies under my belt, so I lose the names. <laughs> but uh, Copper was running around the yard. He's tied up to a barrel, so I, he had a little rope tied around his neck. So Dave did the little puppy running around the yard, and I just had to animate the rope that's tied up to it to make it look legit, like it really had slack and all that get taut and slack. But Dave, I remember he saw what he did and he said, hey, that's great, staying in the movie. So that was my first animation. Fantastic. In Fox and the Hound, my first real fun animation was the bear fight. Uh, Musker and, uh, of course, Glenn Keane was, um, and, and Lasseter had boarded it with him. So anyway, those top talents were working on this bear fight, and they asked me to come up with ideas for the scene. So I came up with the idea of the fox sliding backwards on the rocks as he's trying to scramble up a, 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 a crusty little ridge. And then uh, he slides backwards right under the bear and goes right under the bear's belly. And, and uh, so anyway, I got to not only, I gave him the idea for doing that and they said, yeah, we well, want you animate it too. So that was my that, first That's That's awesome. And I have him I have the fox turning and looking at that, you know, going into the shadow, looking at the bear. So that's now, still part of my heritage. Now, now you were there uh, working on Fox and the Hound and, and right around that time, uh, uh, the whole Bluth crew left. Yeah, I, I always quickly say, hey, hey, no, they didn't hire me because they needed anybody at that point. I was hired before they walked. Right. <laughs> so I was two weeks before, I, I was like hired and I was going to start in two weeks. A week after I got hired, they all walked. So it, when I came in to start work, yeah, it was like days. It, was, it had only been like four days since the, everybody walked out, yeah, the Don Bluth group. So I never met any of them and, you know, never really was a part of that. And, and, and uh, but you were in the thick of all the commotion because of it, right? The wake of, of them leaving and there was some uh, rumors flying. Were, yeah. I mean, probably yes, that I, they were hoping anyone that showed enough talent would, would elevate rather quickly. But honestly, I was, even in that circumstance, it took me years to become an animator. I became an assistant animator, animating assistant. You just stack up. I started doing little uh, odd things, you know, different uh unique little properties like sure. uh, I'm with Mr. Future and the titles to a uh, condor man. I got to animate a lot of those with Mike Sedino. So I had fun, you know, doing little bits, but those didn't count as legit feature animation. So even though I stacked up hundreds of foot, hundreds of feet of animation, I still wasn't getting promoted. But you were but, getting the experience and that yeah. that's really what matters so, about it all. Those are some of my greatest memories of my career yeah. is from those early years with all those young guys and we're just learning everything and and when they, and they came into your room you just said yes yeah exactly I mean, you know it's like hey you, you want to work on this okay yeah sure <laughs> you know i mean uh that was i mean that's that happened to me because i started on black cauldron i mean but it was the same same situation oh yeah whatever you want sure i'm happy to be i'm so happy to be here but yeah. even they would come in with these crazy ideas you remember dave the uh like we had newspaper day where one day they wanted, we were going to pretend we, we, because I guess because we worked next to the biz, the tall office building, the Roy O building, and they all had suits on and we we're just young kids, you know, with t-shirts on and jeans. <laughs> we're the young scrappy, scruffy artists. And so we decided we're going to come in in suits one day with three piece suits and ties and everything. 
and uh, you know slick down here and just be be them for a day. So we just I think Musker might have come up with the idea. Yeah, we'll just we'll be running news competing newspapers. So I. I'm D-Wing, you'll be, you'll be the editor of the D-Wing newspaper, I'll be B-Wing, we're the B-Wing newspaper and we're competing all day long. So all day long we kept calling each other's office, all right, you bastard, you stole my best line, that headline was mine, you <laughs> We smoked all day long, we're just puffing cigarettes and we even went to the coral room in our suits <laughs> and we all and they reserved a table somehow somebody reserved a table for us so we had this tall this long table with like 15 of our crew and we're all wearing suits and ties you know Daryl Van Sitters and Jamo and Chris Buck and, and they're all nervous about it right yeah yeah they yeah. got nervous so we, and then we never somehow we didn't include Tim Burton he was you know and certainly the, one of the main pack leaders but we hadn't included him in the newspaper thing so he in the middle of this lunch we're having in the coral room at the studio in our suits and trying and smoking and annoying all the regular people that are eating out of the executives. Um, Tim barges in and he's like, he's acting weird. And then he blows like oatmeal all over the table. And he said, come on, hire me back. I'm off the sauce. <laughs> I promise I'm off the sauce. <laughs> Oh, oh wow! Was, oh my gosh! And we were that, making, that was actually before my time. I don't remember that. That yeah, that had to have been prior to me getting hired. Oh, <laughs> all, my. All, all the personalities and fun you missed, Dave. Yeah, I know. <laughs> that, that's so fantastic. <laughs> no, I do. I, I have to say though, anytime you sh if you came to work with a, with a shirt and tie on. People got nervous. They, <laughs> yeah. they, I, I remember that's doing not, it a couple of times just as a goof. And and people were like, hey, what's going on? You know, what's up? And and, and I, you Your know, angle. there was a few people I would say, oh, you know, I got a quarter appearance later or something. <laughs> <laughs> hey, believe it or not, it's like that over there at the music industry as well. Anytime that we would show up in a jacket or a tie or, or button down shirt, they're like. Are you, uh, what are you doing? Are you being deposed? <laughs> <laughs> well, the like, worst mistake I made in my life was uh, going to the Annecy Film Festival. Lorenzo, the short film I directed in 2004, yeah. I you know, did a lot on it. So the, I, I was there nominated for best short. So I don't know why, but we went with, did you go with this day? No, I didn't go on that trip, no. But Roy's flight, uh, Roy Disney's private jet with Patty and Roy. But anyway, the opening night where they introduce the, the the key filmmakers that are going to be competing in this thing, I don't know why I wore a, I, I never been to it before, but I just wore a coat and tie and a suit and tie. It was, I think it was a full suit and, and tie and white shirt. So when they introduce you, you stand up on stage and everyone's kind of, okay, clap, clap, clap. And from that moment on, they all just thought I was a Disney stooge exec. The, the, they really, when I won the award, they just ignored me. They all just thought he was just not really an artist. He, I got word on this later from uh, one of the guys that was there at the time. Wow. Because I met him years later and he said, you're kidding me. You actually worked on the film? I go, I animated, I storyboarded it, I designed it. I He goes, I wish I would have known that. We all thought you were just a Disney exec, you know? Uh, honestly, I, I, I got to tell I got to tell. And the I audience won the this. award. You know? I, I, of course you won of the course. award. <laughs> I, I mean, but I have to say, you you said earlier, well, you know, I kind of did this film, you know, the, I, you know, I worked on this uh, Lorenzo film. No, Mike, you did the entire film. I mean, <laughs> you, know, you, you literally... <laughs> Uh, production designed it, directed it, uh, you storyboarded it, you animated it. I mean, you did the rough animation on it for crying. Well, certain scenes, yeah. For, 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 my, yeah. 
for a lot of it. A lot of it. You you, you even did the the brush strokes that were then mapped onto the CG work that went over the rough anime. I mean, that was, talk about like, it was almost, Al John, I have to tell you, it was almost as if the guy was just working in his garage on a, on a, uh, you know, an independent short. That's, you know, the rest of us, I was involved with it. I mean, I was just there to help him. I was there (laughs) just to support the guy and get his, get his artwork up on screen. But I mean, really that's, you did the entire film and that's That's what what a lot of people don't really realize. There were other people there that were involved that helped, but you, did that film okay? I finally got to do my what I call it is even though I didn't go to Cal Arts, I always call it my Cal Arts film. I oh, that's amazing! My <laughs> I love it. There well, you go. well, before we move on, two questions about Lorenzo, right? So, is Lorenzo based on? Are you a cat person, animal person? Is this based on a cat that you know or had? No, no, it isn't. It's in fact, I love I, I love animating cats and drawing cats, and I love animating dogs and drawing. So, cats and dogs are and mice are my three probably favorite <laughs> little cartoon characters. I was gonna say. Drawing. Right. But not, not in real life. I don't have a, I do have a dog, but you don't have a cat, never have. But it really came from Joe Grant, who was still at the, he came back to the studio. He and I were very close and worked as partners really for, for a decade or more. And he had this idea. He would just take his old ideas and pin them on a board outside his office. So it was one of those ideas he had pinned up with this beautiful, big, fluffy blue cat in pastels. Uh, and and just the, the little incidents that would happen in in a short or a feature, he wasn't sure what could be made out of it. And so he would board. He would he and uh, Bernie Mattinson, who was uh, sort of a great story sketch artist, is still there. Still, he's still there. Yeah, I know. I mean, Crazy. Bernie will be the last man. He story. will be the last guy. Yeah. But they they started getting that on its feet, and then Don Hahn started trying to make, and Roy Disney wanted to make a Fantasia. Well, it was going to be Fantasia too. It was going to be Fantasia yeah. World. Yeah, with a lot of folk music from around the world. So a folk, they tried putting some uh, music to it. So anyway, they, it didn't get off the ground until uh, they, Don, when I, when I was available, Don said, would you take over or work on the, the would you like to work on this idea or a uh, Kodo drums? Or he gave me like Polynesian music. He said, he gave me kind of a nice little uh, palette of musical ideas. But I wanted to take, I wanted to take the Lorenzo thing. I loved the Lorenzo idea that Joe and Bernie were working on. So I went and I jumped onto that and sort of Joe. I would always throw everything in front of those guys, especially Joe, and say, "What do you think, Joe?" He goes, "Yeah, yeah, do this, do this." I found the track and all that stuff. But let's we're we're jumping ahead here. We're I'm sorry, we're I'm sorry. Away, like twenty years ahead on his career for crying out loud. Sorry, so, I sidetracked so everybody. You mentioned fun with Mr. Future, and then you got onto Black Cauldron, right? Now yeah. on Black Cauldron, you were animating at that point, weren't you? Yeah, I was happy to be on a feature just because I need. I wanted to become. I wanted to get the rank of animator just because of the prestige of being a Disney animator, and all my buddy, all the Cal Arts guys were already animators, and I just wanted to. I, I just wanted to feel like I was at their level, you know, keeping up with the top guys. So anyway, I was happy to be on And we were all excited about it at the beginning as, you know, the books were inspiring. So, yeah, I became an animator. And I think I worked on, eventually became an animator on Black Cauldron. And I worked with um, Hendel Butoy uh, a lot. He would do he would do the Gurgi and I would do the Terran, you know, animation mm-hmm. scene. So we would split some animation. I, got, I did a number of, I got into the witches quite a bit. I have some pretty you know, fun. They were fun for me. At that time, I started having really fun animating. I would animate little tiny thumbnails and I would really pose it out as a thumbnail and I would flip it and make sure my thumbnails, my tiny little thumbnails were working 
flipping and posing. And then I would blow them up and Xerox them up to a full scale, just these little rough sketches. But I knew if I stayed on that arc, on those arcs, it was going to be, uh, it would be smooth as hell, which it was. It, mm. I would then put the drawing into it and it was, it was just like rolling like glass. It was just so smooth because setting it up tiny really made it, made it stay true to the, to the arts. So anyway, I started having fun doing that stuff and, and Handel uh, was the uh, supervising animator for uh, for Gurgi. Yeah, he was he was the supervisor on Gurgi. So I did get a few little Gurgi scenes, and uh, I, I did a lot of different things. They were all it was a hodgepodge. I was a new young animator, so I got a little piece of this, little piece of that. And you needed to do at least a hundred feet of animation to get that animator credit. Yeah, so I finally got it. Yeah, that's yeah, and, awesome. And the film was the film. And it turned out to be the best film Disney ever made. I was so proud of it. <laughs> hey, listen, it was my first film, and I still have a warm spot in my heart for that movie. Um, I really do. And, uh, you know, well, yeah. in fact, this year is the 35th anniversary of Black Cauldron. Wow. Which is craziness, you know. But I, I will tell you, though, uh, when I finished in the effects department on Black Cauldron, they asked me to paint cells because they wanted to hold on to me, but they didn't have anything for me to do. And I painted cells for like five or six months. Wow. Best education I ever got. Yeah, cool. Best ever on the, the whole back end of the process. Uh, but anyway, you do Black Cauldron and you're an animator and then you move on to Great Mouse Detective, which is now being directed by uh, John Musker, one of your, your buddies, and uh, Ron Clemens. Yeah, they and at the time the, uh, the studio got uh, Roy Disney manipulated to get new leadership into the studio. So we had a new studio leadership with uh, Michael Eisner and Frank Wells. And that meant we're moving out of the animation building to new warehouse buildings in Glendale. So you mean we're we being kicked off. We're kicked we're off kicked the studio off. a lot. <laughs> it, it was, it was a, it was a heartbreak to leave our beloved studio, you know, and get moved off to, to the warehouses, but we did. And we made great films uh, regardless. Um, so yeah, the, the first one was the great mouse detective or Basil of Baker street. And it was just fun because we had our kind of guys, John and Ron, were just our, our, you know, they're five years longer senior to us at the studio, but these were the kind of our pals. So they were directing, which was really cool. And Bernie Mattinson, and uh, he was such a great guy to work with. So anyway, we just uh, got, we just had a play, uh, just a, a playground of fun with Mike, do you want, what characters do you want to work on? Oh, the big fat cat. And the, how about the dog? I love dogs. So I got Toby. I got to be the character leader, leader on Toby, the, the, the Basset Hound. And it was just, I was cranking out footage all, you know, it was just so, such a fun period to be in the studio. You know, I remember uh, during Great Mouse Detective, they had done some audience, um, uh, you know, some test audiences, and Toby had gotten a lot of good response. So Jeffrey Katzenberg wanted to add more Toby scenes. Do, uh, oh, do, you, recall, do you recall that? Uh, yeah, I, I do remember that. I do remember it. I would start to get a lot of, that's why I got to do some stuff at the end where Toby's chasing the fat cat, you know, through the, yeah. was, uh, to be politically correct, the, Extra fluffy cat. Let's just say extra furry, <laughs> a lot of extra fur on that cat. Yeah, a little, little chunky. Body shame that cat, okay? Yeah. Chunk. Some of the funnest animation I ever did is the chase, that that bag of jelly cat, you know, running. You, you lock the head in and the whole body is just going void, 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 void. You could do four frame cycle. In four frames, we got a cat going like that. As long as the head's just doing a little bit of movement. <laughs> 
So that was so I, I had so much fun on that film. So Mike, when 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 did you sort of start to segue out of animation into story? It was around that time. Little Mermaid was starting to be uh, be developed with uh, Alan Menken and, and uh, Howard Ashman, with John and Ron. They were attached always, you know. It seemed like because I think it was their pitch, Ron's pitch, in fact. Um, so that was starting to happen, and George Scribner was uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg was now our bo creative boss, really, and he he wanted to do an Oliver story, you know, but with with animals. I forget where the original concept came from, turning it into a cat and dog thing. Um, I forget, but it was already underway. And Roger Allers was the head of story, and uh, he just came up to me one day in the hallway because I was just an, just an animator. But I guess I had always talked. I had a lot of opinions and a lot of reactions and I, at a screening i'll say a lot afterwards so and, and ideas you were throwing out a ideas, lot of ideas ideas. Huh, ideas so story ideas really a lot about the characters and the story and the development of what's working it is so anyway roger came up to me once and just said hey mike would you be willing to come in and do story sketch for us on, on oliver we'd like you to start doing story so i just jumped at it and said yeah that sounds great i'd love to try it but it was terrifying to try believe me if anyone's been a storyboard artist it's it takes a lot of guts to get up and pitch a board and you gotta, you gotta perform and you gotta, you're, and as an animator, you're in your own little, your own little private cave, you know, and you're in your office animating, but on story, you're in there and you're pitching and you're pinning up ideas and then you got to get up and perform it. You know, Joe Ramp was the greatest uh, and Vance Jerry two of the greatest pitch artists ever. But you're, but you're completely exposed. But you're exposed. Yeah. And I really almost, Trust me, I'm not kidding when I say this. You, you think, oh, I'm exaggerating. I'm not. That day I had to pitch my first board. I was so petrified because I'd been working in there in my office for about two weeks, three weeks, and I had to pitch my first sequence, which was Dodger sneaking in with the with the sausages around his neck. He sneaking back into his own little house, his own little uh, that little uh, barge that they're in, and trying not to let the other dogs smell the sausages and tea those around, and you know. So anyway, that was the scene, but I had to go in and pitch it, and I was petrified. And as I'm driving on the freeway, my off-ramp is coming up, and I'm so close, I just said, keep driving. Don't, just never go back to the studio. Just drive <laughs> to the beach and never go back to the studio, and then no one will know any different. You know, I will never have to face that frightening moment. Life will be fine. Just keep driving, keep driving. And I really, until I came to the off-ramp, and I just go, I'm doing it, I'm doing it. So I got off on the off-ramp. I go to my, I go to this office and here I've got to pitch it. I expect George Scribner to be in there, the director, who's the nicest guy in the world. I'm frightened to pitch to George Scribner. He's the sweetest guy in the world. But I go into my office, believe it or not, there's like six guys in black suits with ties from the studio. And George says, Mike, we're going to pitch. I want that. They wanted to see what the, how the film's developing. So they're going to watch me pitch the board. Oh my Lord. <laughs> so anyway, I still remember getting up there going more terrified than ever, but I started to pitch and immediately because it's my board immediately I said I just got into the moment because I pitched I know every I know what's inside of every character I'm pitching you know I know what Dodger's thinking and feeling so Dodger sneaks in and then comes in Tito pops up so you just start pitching because you've conceived every bit of the action and the characters so it was so fun to pitch and I got a big round of applause and it, it was it was just, you know, it was almost like that's the only time I remember being nervous of a pitch because I never, I never really. Well, was nervous the first, first time's always the nervous one, you know. Yeah, yeah. And then afterwards, you're like, why was I nervous? Right. <laughs> exactly. You know? 
So exactly. that, that's yeah, awesome. First, I always say, because I've presented, I've been a director and production designer, you've had to pitch some, present so many things. I always say you're only nervous for the first 15 seconds. After that, you, you can't get off the stage. It's like, shut up and get off the stage. <laughs> immediately love that you're just enjoying it so much. You can't even stop. You know, I could go on all day, man. But it's Somebody like, bring in the hook. <laughs> yeah, you need the hook. Yeah, so I'm doing storyboards, and then uh, they start. I started doing key sequences. Uh, 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 Fagan reading the storybook to the other dogs, or the dogs reading to him, really. And um, and the end, uh, the end subway chase, and oh, Dodger song was my big sequence. I boarded it, and so I got to board that, and then I got to uh, supervise the animation. I, I would go and record the talent, George Goodman, and I would go and record the artists a lot. And uh, in New York, and George didn't really care to fly. And uh, so after a certain point, I had already recorded with George a few times, Billy Joel and, you know, different Joey Lawrence and different actors. So at a certain point, they just let me go alone to New York to record the artists. And uh, so I was doing all a lot of sort of almost assistant directing work. I was doing color models with George, you know, keying the colors and mm -hmm. character design. Yeah, I was doing character design. Andreas and I did a lot of the character design. And that, 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 that was a great, the great thing about being able to do uh, little bits and pieces, you know, yeah. and, it was like and, whatever, and, yeah. whatever you felt, whatever you got inspired to do or whatever you wanted to put some input in, they would kind of let you do it at that point. Cause we were just all young guys trying things. Yeah, I know George does not like to fly. Um, uh, he and I did a project uh, where we had to go to Mexico City and then to Alcapulco. And instead of flying to Alcapulco, we had we were driven to Alcapulco. Oh, we oh. had this road trip across Mexico. It was hilarious. Oh, hilarious. <laughs> a story for another time. I can't but, imagine. Uh, that's my experience with George, who, by the way, we had on uh, like a month ago uh, oh, t t talking about um, uh, what the heck were we talking about? Oh, uh, I, we oh so actually, much. it was uh, it was the anniversary of um, uh, uh, Prince and the Pauper. That was That's it. Right. Yeah, there's, there's so many anniversaries this year. It's kind of <laughs> crazy, you know. Yep. So, so you really got your feet wet on storyboarding on Oliver and Company. Yeah, and they um, sometimes I would put sound behind my stuff, and I started to make little sequences and put music cues and things. So yeah. anyway, it's, at one point uh, they had determined they were going to. I, 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 Peter Schneider was our boss of the department. And he called me into his office and the, as Oliver and company was kind of starting to wrap and he just, he offered me, would you like to co Would you like to direct the rescuers down? Would you like to direct the rest? Yeah. It was the rescuers down under even back then. That was the title from the beginning. So would you, we're going to make a sequel to rescuers. Would you like to direct it? And I said, well, why would you want to make a sequel to that film? He said, well, that's what we're going to make. I mean, that film has done very well in the last 10 years. That film's made more money than any other film we've released. And it's an obvious sequel. They're, they're detectives. They get another. So that's what we're going to make. Jeffrey wants to make it. We're going to make it. Whether you do it or not, we're going to make it. So I, he said, Hendel Butoy is also considering doing it. So I, would you mind working with him? I loved Hendel. I said, no, I love him. I'd be happy. To. I said, let me, let me think about it. <laughs> what a bad answer. <laughs> so I just said, I, let me think about it. I really don't love the idea. It's a sequel, but. Let me think about it because I do. So anyway, I said, let me go have lunch with Hendel and I'll, I'll tell you my, I'll give you my answer after talking to Hendel. So I went to lunch with Hendel at Glendale outside of the patio and out there. 
And we just started talking about the possibilities of the beautiful outback, the, the, the scope of the scale of the world is so gigantic in Australia, exotic. And, you know, frankly, I guess they picked Australia because uh, Crocodile Dundee had come out. So, you know, Jeffrey always got excited by a hit and he just thought, let me get a piece of that hit action. So, but it was a great, I, I love the, uh, the animals that you have in Australia that are unique to that continent, you know, platypuses and, you know, kangaroo, just great. You've never seen Disney characters really from that realm. Very rarely would you see a, a, an Australian animal. And the Aboriginal art. <clears throat> yeah. The Aboriginal art was so inspiring. But anyway, that's when I, I we decided we loved the characters, Bernard and Bianca, and we loved the, the original. We loved it. So yeah. we had no problem with it. Um, we just go, yeah, let's, and I don't want to turn down an opportunity. I'm going to get like this. It may not come again. So I said, yeah, we'll do it. And uh, I said, but we're going to go to Australia to research it. And Peter goes, no, you're not going. I go, Peter, we've never been to Australia. We're going to make a movie that takes place in Australia, but we're not going to go to Australia. No, 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 you're not. Well, I'm, we're not, we're not going to send you to Australia. Forget it. Because that was never done. No one's ever done it before. You right. Know, but, the, the the research trips were few and far between. Yeah. I mean, you think you you think the guys all went to London when they did 101 Dalmatians? No. Yeah. I mean, that's just. So it was just this kind of a crazy idea. You we're going to send you got you to Australia. So anyway, I did. I I was absolutely determined to go. So I finally told him, like days later. I I checked in maybe a week later, and he just goes, Mike, forget it, forget it. So I just said, well, I'm going, I'll pay my own way, but I'm going, I'm not going to make this movie without being at least exposed to the real continent. I want to know what I'm doing. I'm not going to fly yeah. blind through this whole thing. So he didn't say anything to that. He just, of course, you know, you'd think he'd go, Oh, all right. Well, no, he didn't say anything. But about a week later, uh, Tom Schumacher, I think was producer at the time on it. And Tom came back and said, Peter said, we're going to go to Australia. He said, he'll pay his way. He'll, he'll pay the way. So, yeah. and that and that really sort of started the the research trips after that because any picture they were doing, you know, Lion King, the whole, the whole you know core team went to Africa. We set up the it. paradigm, yeah, yeah. So uh, from then on, it was always the way you did it. Yeah, it definitely impacted the film. I think the film shows, you know, extreme uh, exaggerations of some things, but uh, but hell, I mean, just the opening shot is because we were. We went to the middle of the continent and we uh, we climbed Ayers Rock, Uluru, Uluru, and the uh, the Olgas, you know, that come flashing by. Those were actually mountains that we hiked through and felt the wind blowing through the canyons. And it so, makes it more it makes it more authentic. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I absolutely. Think, That's what you're, you know. And, and yeah, authentic and separate from the other films. You know, you're always looking for what's going to make this film unique and not just be the same old thing. It's, you know, you can easily fall into, you know, let's say you got a dog or a cat or a Siamese, you got a couple of Siamese cats. What are you going to do to make it different than Cyan Am? You know, you're always looking for a unique something that makes it really yeah. The other interesting thing about Rescuers Down Under uh, is that it, it marks the transition from, from the actual acetate cells that used to be painted yeah. to the computer technology, which, which yeah. of course, Roy, Roy Disney was a huge proponent and supporter of and really 
pushed uh, Frank Wells to allocate the funding uh, to to do the uh, the digital technology to bring digital technology into Disney Animation, and so Rescuers Down Under really marks that that delineation where uh, the film is all digitally inked and painted. And how was that for you? Because that was really throwing in something completely new and different. Yeah, it was uh, totally. And for me, and I've been told recently, well, that's the first digital film ever made. So it's like any film of live action or animation, that's the first digital film ever put together, um, which is kind of cool. But um, it was exciting because the, the main thing is I would I would be told by Kathleen Gavin or, or Peter or Schneider or whoever, that you're going to get to use ink line. We're going to color the line and you're going to get tone mats and you're going to get, so I was just being told you're going to get all that sort of detail that Pinocchio had or Fantasia had because we could never afford it uh, with, with cells. It was too labor intensive and the, the number of hours and artists, you know, 500 artists for four years to do Fantasia's one sequencer. So, you know, we weren't able to do, we will never even conceive of doing that, even though we kept screaming, even Don Bluth was after the same thing. We want it to look like the old films, the quality of the old films. We don't want it to look like Aristocats anymore or, you know, Robin Hood, fantastic for the animation, but we still want to get into the worlds in more beautiful, exotic ways. So anyway, we were just thrilled to, to get the shot at doing something with, with tone mats and with shadows and, you know, just a beautiful return to the ink line look is what we were getting, you know, out of the deal. So I, I didn't know enough about computers to, uh, to say, well, I don't think we're going to have the, the server space, or I think we're going to need, we're going to have to book a bunch of servers in uh, Canada and probably to store the digital information. I, I'm like, I'm not that guy. I'm just going to say, Ooh, I get to do more, more colors <laughs> and more ink line and shadows and give it to me, baby. So, that, I mean, I could conceive of that opening shot. I still remember conceiving of the opening shot. And of course, that's only done with digital. Uh, which, almost broke, I, which almost broke the system. Yeah, it was brutal. Brutal <laughs> to the department to, to get the, to, to figure it out. But it, I was always told you're going to get a multi-plane camera, but times 10, you know, whatever you, as many layers, as, it's going to be digitized. So you'll have as many layers as you want. What do I do? <laughs> I come up with an idea where we got 15, you know, million layers, you know, as you're racing across the outback in the opening shot. And just so that uh, the listeners understand when, when you were doing, when we did cell animation, we were limited to four cell levels because yeah. if you went beyond four cell levels, the, the actual cell started to shift the backgrounds and, and you started to get density issues. So you were, you had to, if, even if you animated stuff on 10 different levels, it eventually all had to be boiled down to four cell levels. Uh, and they had the multiplane camera, which was also hugely labor intensive uh, to use. So when when on Rescuers Down Under, you literally could have 10,000 levels because that is what they set it at was uh. 10,000. You could have 10,000 levels uh, and you'd have no density issues and you could do everything the multiplane camera could do and then some, uh. you know, and 
you were correct in, in, in like having all those different ink lines and everything, but I distinctly remember them putting a cap on how many ink lines you could use. They started to manage it to like, okay, on this scene, you can only have six ink lines. So you pick the six you want, you know, do you remember that? Yeah, I do. I was frustrated. Like, come on, we can do all, <laughs> let's get, you know, I was frustrated that we couldn't get more uh, detail at, incline work done yeah we still had a little bit of a handcuff on some of that stuff i can't complain at all but um, i always remember going into color models to the ladies working on the computers for the first time color models on a computer screen and being told this is this is issues you know i don't say names but this is the this is the scene here's the colors and i'd go those colors are different than the, the hookup scene to this it's different color no no that's the same i checked it's i double checked that's the same I think it's different. I think it's darker. So anyway, she would, we'd have a wall, the whole wall with those clipboards with just those folding pages, you know, so she'd go flipping through the, the docket, you know, just kind of the label of every shot and the color code, all just done by hand, you know, so, so archaic. And she would go, oh, you're right. Yeah, that is different. Okay, I'll change it. But I mean, it was like, every they'll tell you in Carmel's, it was so much of just in my memory, what was a link to the, Oh, it's a, it's a different color. That's the different. It's a little bit different. I think that was because it was. So anyway, there was so much just like me coming out with a headache going, I, I hope I've caught everything. You know, I hope mm. I've caught everything. It wasn't like a digital, just a drop over. You know, it was nothing was loaded in. in that right. Way. And speaking of loaded in, I mean, that early cap system, they had to tell the digital uh, technicians uh, what scenes were going to be worked on the next day. And overnight, they would load the exabyte tape into this carousel uh, that uh, essentially was the, quote, server, if you will, uh, that could be worked on the next day. That's how, you know, early the system was. And oh, yeah. and the, the, the graphics computers were actually Pixar computers. Pixar was involved with the design of that early cap system. And we should make it, one of the coolest things about that whole transition was we kept all the ink and paint ladies from Walt's days, you know, the ones that were there in the, at least the 50s, if not the 40s. And, Mm -hmm. And uh, they would they transitioned over and learned the computer coloring. Yeah. They were they were initially very, very nervous when they were talking about a digital ink and paint system because they there was this nervousness that uh, they were gonna completely upend the back end of the production process and not really need most of those folks and bring in, you know, software jocks and things like that. Um, and and it really was kind of interesting how they did that whole transition. Um, from from the traditional method that had been done for 50 plus years at the Disney studios into the computer generation, you know, computer generated um, uh, imagery and compositing and all of that. And now, Dave, you, know, you probably know more about this, but Kathleen Gavin said that she was the associate producer on it. And uh, she said it was the only time she ever cried working on a film when they said they were the, the tech guys, uh, Lem, Lem and uh, Lem Davis and yeah, they, they uh, yeah, but they came in and they promised that they could tra they could transition into a new. We were going to switch into a whole new delivery technical digital delivery system, and the and the film was going to come out in about three months, and they they promised it could be backed out of if it didn't work, 
So she said, okay, go for it. You're sure I can stop it if it's not working and stay with where we're at? Yes. Well, it, it didn't work. And so they had, and then they told her, it was like three months, she's got to deliver the, she's got like six weeks to deliver the whole film. And they said, we can't back out of it after all. And she just said, she's, it's the only time she actually sat at her desk on a Sunday afternoon and cried. Oh, mm. wow. I'm, I'm D-E-D dead. We have no film now. Yeah, so but it, was, but it, it got done. Yeah, it, it, got, it done. got done. It, I mean, it was a miracle it got done, yeah. you know, because there were a lot of technical issues on the back end. Those guys uh, are heroes, just. But heroes. yeah, and, and they and they did go on to win a Technical Academy Award for the CAP system because of it, you know, so. Of course, but, of course the next year, yeah, for Beauty and the Beast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, just cra- crazy, crazy stuff. But um, what, what are your fond memories of uh, Rescuers Down Under as far as your first directing gig goes? Uh, it's always, uh, one of my favorite memories is just working with Jeffrey. You have a Walt Disney figure that can green light anything you say or anything you do, and it just goes forward. So you don't have a committee, so you do have one voice you have to get an approval with. So I, I loved being able to call Jeffrey, like when, when, uh, Wilbur, the voice of Wilbur, uh, who's the original guy? I forget his name, but uh, the actor that would played Wilbur from the first film, uh, Orville, I mean, yeah, Orville from the first film, he wasn't, uh, he was a great old character actor, but he had passed away, so we needed a new voice, so I came up with John Candy as a choice, because I always loved John Candy, so I just called Jeffrey up and said, hey, I want to use John Candy for uh, the, the brother of Orville, Wilbur. And uh, for that role, and he just said, great, love it, do it, bang. So we just, that, that was that quick. And I pitched him the opening shot after we were having a story meeting, but we went to get coffee. And he, he and I were just standing there in the back of this little coffee kiosk area get, as I'm waiting for my coffee. I said, Jeffrey, I got an idea for the opening shot. And I said, it's kind of like in Hatari when it's all quiet at the beginning and you just hear these exotic sounds and everything's still. And then we break hard as we go. Instead of going after a rhino, we're just going to zoom across the outback. So we start at the mouse level, eye, eye point of view, eye level, little bugs crawling around. And then we take off, bug takes off, and we zoom across the outback to Cody's house. So now we're at the adult, the human level. So we go from bug level to human level just to set up the two dynamics. Great. Do it. Love it. So that was the thing that became the big opening shot. But it was cool that you could just talk to a guy and get, get approval for that. And, and the research trip in Australia was so exotic and fun and wild. And I mean, I have great memories of being on that trip with Joe Ramsd. I had a story and Pichu, Pichu, um, Pichu Yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. So, uh, and, uh, Hendel Butoy and Tom Schumacher, our producer. And so it was just such a small little group of five of us for two and a half weeks over there, which was great fun. And honestly, the scoring sessions are so exciting. To that big score being done, I would always, I would be in the room out with the musicians and Hendela too, and just to hear that sort of you know the opening the opening tracks and the, and the way I, I really wanted those exotic instruments because Hitari I loved the way Henry Mancini used those exotic weird sounding you know percussive instruments. So we did a lot of research with getting the didgeridoos and all that while we were in Australia, but mm-hmm. we brought back a bunch of those things. So whoa 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 you know just putting that there, just these, all these strange little timber, you know, contraption instruments. 
And I just love being on the stage when that would get put down and, and then run it with the, with the imagery. Just that great feeling of where, where was uh, where was the score recorded? Do you recall? Well, you would do each session in a different place. So some of it was Warner Brothers. Some of it was, and we would do some of the, uh, yeah. we would we would do a lot of the vocal stuff on the lot on stage B, you know, and yeah. the old stage was docked. But the uh, uh, Clint Eastwood recording studio over at Warner Brothers is pretty, pretty yeah. great facility. Talking yeah. about a legendary facility. Yeah. yeah, we would do that. I think, but we'd even go to Sony. We'd go different, but I, a lot of it was at Eastwood's. Yeah. That's a, it's a great stage. Um, so it was mainly that stuff. When it was, I mean, pitching the the board that one of the great memories is watching Glenn and Brenda Chapman Lima pitch the opening, the bird flight sequence with Cody, where yeah. Cody bonds with the eagle and flies with the eagle. And, and Chris Sanders actually boarded a lot of that stuff too. So top talent will make it will make a pretty impactful moment in the film. So why did Brenda, you know, pitch her board with the eagle and the cuteness of that with the bird doing all its head stuff? How did you like working with uh, Bruce Broughton, uh, the composer? He was so, he was so nice and uh, open to ideas. And he was just, he's one of the sweetest guys in the world. Again, just nice people. And, and we um, had, we had Bruce on the show a couple three weeks ago or something. Oh, great! Weeks ago, yeah. Um, we we're, we're just trying to grab people as we can, <laughs> uh, and especially when there's anniversaries involved. But we we talked a little bit with Bruce about the music for um, Rescuers Down Under, and also just music scoring in general for mm-hmm. you know animated She's films. Done so much for the yeah. theme parks and all. Oh, and also, I would he he would always. He always kind of liked that I had a yo-yo at, at, on the stage, so I was always doing a yo-yo. But the musicians would not let me yo-yo out, and because I'm they're next, they're Stradivariuses, and and they're like watching me flip this yo-yo, this big wooden yo-yo around, and they finally kick me out and say, "Don't do the yo-yo, Mike. Don't do the yo-yo." <laughs> oh boy, great but group of people. Fun. The sound mix is so fun because you're putting all the elements together, and I would be sliding down the rugs and in, in slippery shoes and. Bruce would start to do it too. We'd go running and slide down the theater slant, you know, and yeah. see how who could slide the furthest. We had, <laughs> we had so much fun driving. It's great stuff. Um, the reception of the movie was reasonably good, I think. Well, it was, uh, it was blasted. It was like a nuclear blast went off right next to the film release. That nuclear blast was Home Alone. So, yeah, Home Alone came out. Everybody saw Home Alone. It was like the, all they saw was the big blast of Home Alone being so entertaining, so magical. And I, I love the film too. I think it's fantastic. So or still entertaining. It's a classic, yeah. really. So nothing wrong with a, a film being great, but it just took all the wind out of our sails. So nobody was going to something called Rescuers Down Under. That just didn't appear. There wasn't a something didn't click in there. You know. And, and their excitement level, they, they weren't intrigued by that title or, and the, the original film hadn't been out. Well, I take it back. They released it. So it was just one of those moments where one film was the one they went, they wanted to see because it gave you everything you wanted in a Christmas film comedy and that Macaulay Culkin was adorable. Yeah. But yeah, so that was the only downside was I got the, it was definitely considered a failed release. Um, but well, I mean, part, really, partly be, partly because Jeffrey had pulled the television advertising. He pulled it on the first Saturday morning. Yeah, he pulled it all. He said it's not working. We're pulling it. So it did die quick. But and I kept 
you know, he gave me the phone call at 7.30 in the morning on the first day of release, on the second day of release on Saturday morning. And he just said, no, it's not working, Mike. They're all going to home alone. Forget it. It's over. Think about the next one. Just move on. Just move on. He didn't blame me or it wasn't anything we did wrong. Just said it's not it's not working. So we're 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 pulling the pulling the press, pulling everything. You know, that's one I'm of like, the, uh, the, the what about word of mouth, Jeffrey? Word of mouth, the word of mouth. You know, that's what said. he's just like, move on, forget it. Move on. Yeah, but but they were so quick to do that. That's the thing that bothered me was that they like at any sign that there was a little bit of a speed bump, they would just yank, you know, advertising. We're not putting any more money to it. And you're yeah. like, wait a second, you know, there's a movie here and it could have legs, you know? Well, I think, I don't think Eisner really bought, he didn't really care for the movie much. I think I, in his autobiography, he said something like it was the only creative miss, the only creative miss in my first 10 years, something like that. But he didn't say financially, he said creative, which kind of like a little bit of a dagger in the heart, you know? Oh, yeah. Cool. But they they let me direct again. You know, I did I did another Pocahontas after that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, uh, when did you pitch Pocahontas? I, I think we can take a few more minutes and go into this because I think this is a really interesting story. Because you, you just explain to our audience what the Gong Show was and then what your pitch was. Because as I remember it, you had a piece of art and you had one word. Or actually, you, actually, you said Walt Disney Pictures presents. But you, I mean, essentially, one word title. You know, well, but go ahead. That's how Peter Schneider remembers it too. But I actually had on the back of it. So anyway, I'll just set it up. So they decided, Jeffrey, the films were starting to work. Little Mermaid had come out, and they needed movies. They wanted more, some great movies to be made. So where do we get the ideas? So they turned it over to the animation department and said, anybody that has any ideas for a feature film. Um, you can pitch it to to Michael Eisner, Jeffrey Katzberg, Roy Disney, and Peter Schneider, and they'll give you an immediate yes or no, or, or they will, uh, you know, either gong it or or give it some love. So if you want to get a film made, just you don't get to direct it necessarily, but if you have an idea you want to you want Walt Disney Studios to make, here's here's your moment. Come to the Gong Show Thursday at three o'clock in, in this meeting room and just pitch your you got you got as much time as you want to pitch your story. So I had, I was at, this was around Thanksgiving time and I had failed getting the audience to care about Rescue of Donna because I, they just didn't like, they didn't recognize it as one of those great titles. You know, I'm Little Mermaid was such a huge success with the music, the sweep, the, the beauty, the title, Hans Christian Andersen's Little Mermaid. So it's a title that says classic. So I'm thinking, man, I need a title that's like Pinocchio or, one of those titles that people recognize and get excited about. Oh, it's, you know, the, the little, you know, little match girl, whatever it is. So I'm looking for a title really. So I'm, I'm at my, uh, and I'm determined to make it a musical made this time. I want music in this next movie. I want songs that people resonate with because they just move you emotionally. And they're such a big part of the fun animation with music. So I knew I wanted a title and I wanted music. And I really wanted to do a Western of some sort. So I'm looking for something like, you know, something sort of Western-ish. So I met my uh, wife, Tammy's uh, relative's house for Thanksgiving, the, her aunt and uncle's house. And as they're in the kitchen getting the dinner ready, I'm just all by myself in the, in the uh, uncle's library. And he had a pretty extensive uh, uh, bunch of books in the, in the bookcase. And so I saw a lot of titles, you know, like Ivanhoe. And he had the classics in there, Tom Sawyer and all that stuff. 
But then I saw Pocahontas and I immediately went, bing, 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 bing. You know, whoa, she's, I love the idea. She's American Indian. I love the idea. All I know is she put her head on John Smith and saved the guy's life. So she saved the guy's life rather than the, the hero being the man. She's the hero, heroine. I go, oh man, and she's a princess. Her dad is a chief. I go, whoa, she's a princess. And, and then there's all the magic of the animism and all the belief system and all the animals of the forest and all but <laughs> just like, and the music is going to have all the drums. And I'm going, like, this is, this is it. This is it. So I went into the kitchen. I said, I just thought of the next big Disney feature. It's <laughs> <That's> amazing. <laughs> Such a meek little humble man I am. And, and they all go, oh, kind of laugh, but they go, yeah, what is it? And I go, Walt Disney's Pocahontas. And they all just go, that's a great idea, actually. That is really good. I love that. So I go, yeah, we can do the magic and the special effect. And we'll have all this, you know, great animals that can talk and so anyway, because that's what Native Americans believe. You can speak with the animals, and it's just like a natural for Disney. It's never been touched, and she's the princess, but she saves the prince. And it's all just so, it's, I'm so excited about it. So anyway, when the gong show came up, I'm like, bang, I'm going to pitch Pocahontas. So that, that night, I just thought, I'm just going to get up and say Pocahontas? i got to say something. So I structured what the story really, what the beauty of the structure is. And I, I wrote it out, and I taped it to the back of the artwork. I, I take the I take the uh, the wording down real simple a paragraph about a Native American princess falls in love with, with the invading settlers and is torn between her father's wishes to destroy the settlers and her wishes to bring peace as you know and and I think I might have said something about the love story of John Smith but she fell in love with one of the settlers something like that so it's a love story set in this world of two clashing cultures coming together by this invading, you know, in, incoming group. So I just thought, you know, I, because the title is so good, Walt Disney's Pocahontas, I love that. I just got to, I got to get the poster. So I quickly did up, this is like the night before I mocked up a poster that was probably about, probably about 18 by 24. And I, I, I Xeroxed Walt Disney's, you know, scripted and I taped together the real Walt Disney logo. And then I put, I mocked in my own Pocahontas. And then I put like Tiger Lily in the forest with, little forest animals and I colored it in. I made the whole color scene in the forest and I, you know, little ship in the background coming in maybe. So here's the one sheet. So anyway, when I got, and I have a sheet of paper over it. So when they, okay, Mike, what's your idea? I'm at the gong show and there's Michael and Roy and Jeffrey and all right, what do you got? And I'd already directed, so they knew I was a director, but what do you got? So I just go, I pull the sheet back and I show the one sheet across this huge table. I'm in such a long table. And I hold the one sheet up and I read the back. But all they heard was Walt Disney's, I just said, Walt Disney's Pocahontas. An Indian princess falls in love with a settler, with a settler of the invading villa. And I read the thing off and they just, and I put the thing down and they just look at each other. It went quiet. The whole room went quiet. And, my, and they just go, wow, that's good. And, and Michael says to Jeffrey, I mean, Michael honestly said, didn't we make that already? But, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's how natural it was, I guess. But he, he goes, no, that's Pinocchio. It was Pocahontas, something like that. I mean, I shouldn't say that. But I was told never repeat that story. But anyway, failures. And I love Michael. I cute Michael. But um, but anyway, I said Walt Disney's Pocahontas, and then they looked at each other and they just said, "Hey, Michael said to Jeffrey, hey, that's your Romeo and Juliet. That's the cult, cult, clash of the cultures. Perfect.'" 
it's a, in a new setting in the wild and it's got all the animals in it. You go, that's, that's good. That's really good. Yeah, Mike, that's great. We can do this. We can do that. And now they're just talking to each other. Then we can do this. And the music can be that. Blah, blah. So anyway, it wasn't like that's a good one, but the, it ended with everybody just going, wow, that's a, that's a good idea. Everyone goes, that's a good idea. So anyway, when we walked out of the meeting, everybody had pitched, you know, probably 10 different pitch, pitch items. And I remember people just like, man, my gears went really well. That sure went well. And then the next day I got a phone call from Jeffrey. He was on his private jet going to New York and he just called me and said, Mike, it's a green light. We're going to make it go start developing it. So I, I got the official green light the next day. That's awesome. That's that's such a great story. But, you know, it it really is the story that floats around is that Mike just said, Walt Disney Pictures presents Pocahontas. Like That was his pitch. (laughs) Mike drop. It's a good selling point because anybody would think, well, I can do that. Oh, yeah, I got to do this thing in the title. That's the way way Orion Pictures, you know, uh, back in the day when they were selling all these, these movies, they would have the artist come up with like the, the, the movie poster and pitch it to these executives. Uh, Is that right? Uh, yeah. And, and that's how a, a lot of the Stallone movies were sold uh, just on the basis of, you know, Stallone in, you know, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and it's like, when you were just describing that, Mike, I was sold. I was like, I was thinking the exact same thing. I was rolling. It's like, <laughs> oh man, this is going to be great. It's, it's the whole Romeo and Juliet thing. My brain was working. I was in the room. I felt like I was in the room with you making the pitch. And I was like, I am not gonging this. This is amazing. And of course it was amazing. It did. That one did land. Nicely. So good. Yeah, I'm really proud of the success of that. And even rescued, you know, I, it was such a hard release for rescues for me. I mean, Dave, in hindsight, it doesn't seem that bad, but it was a it was a pretty good blow to me. Just my heart was into it so fully. But over time, I'm I've been shocked at the number of people that have been great, huge fans of that film, even more than Pocahontas. Like I went to uh, up at uh, Lucasfilm. Uh, um, we went to lunch with some of the guys up at Lucasfilm and special effects and like the top guys in the industry and we we're having lunch outside in San Francisco with them. And they didn't know me from Adam. It, it, it might be a real name. No, no, no connection of any kind, obviously. And then, but then they go after the lunch is almost done, word gets around, Hey, this is the guy that did rescuers down under. And they go telling each other, Hey, Jim, this is the guy, this guy directed rescuers down under. No way. Oh my God. We love that. Show. Yeah. It, that kind of reaction now and then from top guys in the industry. And I'm just like, well, something got through. Something really connected with people. You know, I, I think, though, that, you know, you, you can't judge these movies just by a box office. I mean, look at you Pinocchio. Know. That was a failure when it came out, honestly. Exactly. Yeah. You know, Pinocchio didn't do well. Fantasia didn't Fantasia. do well. Um, you know, these are these are great films. I mean, these are at the pinnacle of the art form, you know. And so, to me, I'm not surprised people, uh, uh, you know, uh, have, have warmed up if you will or that there's a cult following or however you want to put it you know nightmare before christmas there's another there's a contemporary film that that it didn't do well when it went out because they didn't know how to market it and again you know rescuers down under they just pulled the advertising on it so nobody knew about it and i think if they just let the advertising play out for another couple of weeks it would people who had seen home alone would have said okay let's go see rescuers down under you know and uh, it just was, it yeah. was uh, the timing of the release, you know, your pos- the, the public, the worldwide public was positioned by Little Mermaid 
they can't wait for the next musical yeah. special musical from Disney. So it, it, they wanted that Little Mermaid feeling again. Yeah. This was none of that. And this was actually a little rough. I looked at it again recently for the uh, anniversary. And it is a pretty intense, you know, there's a lot of intensity yeah. to, to McLeach. And I think he's, his character works and he's really funny. And Joanna, there's a lot of great characters in the film throughout. Really good characters. Yeah. But it's pretty intense throwing knives and dipping them in crocodile falls. And I, sure. I mean, I was young and maybe didn't quite. I went for it pretty strong. You know, I'd rather, I'd rather, I guess that's my nature is I go a little more intense and I'd rather have something visceral and a little more intense, you know, just to, just to keep the, keep the thing, uh, as, as powerful as it can be. Maybe, well, maybe I could have tempered it a little more. Well, hey, listen, that's what I, makes it I, memorable. I have, it's yeah, memorable. I, I have very fond memories of working on the film and, and I, I enjoy it. I, I watch all of these movies from time to time, you know, I'll pop one of them on and, you know, I think rescuers down under holds up really well. Um, I, I, as, I, I like hearing that. Overall as a film. Uh, and yeah. I do think that there is uh there's an audience out there that really enjoys it. Yeah. Um, I wish we could continue talking cause we could probably talk for another, um, you know, multi multiple hours here, you know, two, three, four hours, uh, just drilling into every one of these projects. But I do want to say thanks for having, you know, thanks for, for you coming on the show, but I definitely want to see us have you back as uh, a guest, uh, again in the future. And, uh, yeah. And, and, and I want to talk more about the latter part of your career because I think you've done some magnificent stuff as a production designer. I mean, just, I mean, look at Wreck-It Ralph. I mean, holy mackerel, <laughs> you know, I mean, such a, such a great film and a beautiful looking film. Um, uh, all, all those different environments and Agreed. stuff. Yeah. So uh, I'd love to talk about it. I love that film. It's one of yeah. my most proudest films I've worked on. Yeah. Awesome. And, and I, I, we should give a shout out if anybody's interested. Mike Gabriel has a, uh, has a store on Etsy uh, with a lot of his beautiful artwork. Some of it, I think, was inspired. Some There's some paintings that I think are inspired by your work on Moana. Am I correct? Uh, well, I love, trust me, I didn't work on Moana, but I would have loved to have. I would, I've would. i always loved the tiki aspect, you know, the Pacific Island sort of yeah. world. world of, uh, you know, we go to Hawaii every year. And so I have a special take on that where I, it, it's not, it's not culturally popular to be this way not right now but i don't care i'm true to who i am and yeah. my relationship with the island is a vacation you know so sure. I, I love the uh I, I i love the the legacy of sort of that the dream world kind of way of doing the island stuff so i like i, I love the people and the culture and the fabric and the senses the flavor so i put my artwork to that experience that i wish for for the islands to continue and not just become uh not try to prove I can get down to the real grit truth of, of the betrayal of the islands to the white culture. And to, I, I don't really, I accept that as what, where anyone comes from and they want to communicate that I'm communicating sort of the, the fantasy element of, of the white man's vacation. Yeah, the, so I, the put, I put a simplicity to it and just the beauty of, a, a beauty of the feel of the wind. I always, I, all my characters have wind blowing through their hair and the smells of the, the ocean. And so I try to capture that, but I came up with this idea of putting glamor as a part of it. So I love the, the uh, George Harrell Hollywood glamor or the exo the beauty of 1930s 
perfect lighting and glamour of, of, of the pose and, you know, whether it's these famous actresses or, or, uh, or what. So I get inspired by those elements. And so I thought, I was trying to figure what am I going to paint next, the Hawaiian thing or this, I want to do some of these glamour shots. And I go, wait a minute, uh, nobody's <laughs> ever put glamour to the Hollywood, the beauty of the Hollywood female form. And I mean, it was to the beauty of the Hawaiian female form. So I'm just going to put these beautiful elegance to the, like a, a, a sort of a, a non sequitur elegance to their culture. And I think it's going to bring something really unique that is like, it, you can see it as a, as a way of portraying the, the influence of white man onto the Island by it being kind of the Hollywood glamor aspect of it. But I, I see it any way you want. It's what I think looks really, it's, it's a new way of looking at Hollywood, of, of Hawaiian culture through a glamour Hollywood lens, you know, and I think it's just fun to see what I can do with that to, 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 to make it feel fantasy like, you know, I, I'm always about the fantasy. Yeah, that's beautiful. To, I've never been drawn to the real true grit of real life. I've always wanted to go into sort of a, mm. a make believe land. So I'm making it into a make believe land. So it wouldn't, it, it rub some people maybe as culturally not proper or not act, not true to the culture. I'm hey, uh, as an artist, I, I'm creating what Mike Gabriel is creating. So I got to say, people go to the go to Mike's Etsy store. Look at his prints; they're absolutely stunning. His paintings. Yes. I love Mike's artwork. I own some of Mike's artwork. Yeah. Not only do I have the um, uh, Lorenzo the cat hanging on the yeah. wall here, but <laughs> I also have one of your Hawaiian uh, women oh, yeah. paintings. Fantastic. Um, it, you donated it a number of years ago to to a charity art and wine auction that we were doing, and uh, Nancy and I actually bought that one. Oh, so wow. I, I, I have I have one of those paintings as well. <laughs> I have this whole collection of artwork, uh, Al John. Oh well, no! Know, you know, no it, it, all it, all of my beautiful. friends who are just fantastic painters, I've seemed to have acquired some of their work over the years, either as a gift or through a purchase. So, oh, I appreciate uh, that. Yeah, yeah. but. I Hanging in a man like you and your taste to be hanging in your house is, is an honor. It's you know, beautiful, I beautiful stuff. That. And by the way, beautiful stuff, Mike. You know, when I look at your your art, it it reminds me of uh, covers of Harper's Bazaar because <laughs> it's it's got that look and very classy, elegant. You know, as you said, that that whole that whole beautiful kind oh, of vibe. That. So you know, I'm looking at that, going, man, uh, that could be you know, the front of a of a Harper's Bazaar magazine. It just looks really, really great. And also being you know Filipino Chinese, I think it is a really great. I think it's just beautiful. Beautiful art is beautiful art, regardless. It's a celebration. It's a it celebration of culture. That's the byline. I'm going to put that. Beautiful art is beautiful art. That's, that's right. it. Yeah, that's right. Because <laughs> it's you, it, there's a sincerity to it. You can tell, right? Aljon? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's a beautiful art. It's beautiful art. It's great form. And it is very just visually just stunning. Uh, very beautiful. And by the way, big fan, fan of your, the, the art of your, your, the animals that you have there too, because a lot of animals there, there's, yeah. there's so many, once again, <laughs> it's just so much personality in the art. And uh, one, one of these days I too will have Mike Gabriel art in my home. So it'll, ah, be, great. it'll, be, it'll be amazing. <laughs> so, all right, Mike, you thank you. Time. 
Thank you so much for being on, folks. Go visit Mike's uh, Etsy store, Mike Gabriel at Etsy. And uh, Mike, we're going to look forward to having you back on the show at some point in the future. Uh, When things are better, uh, when when we're through this pandemic, maybe you and your brother Tom and I will go grab a beer someplace. Yeah. Now now that you're retired with the rest of us. I would love it, Dave. Yeah, we got to do it. We got to go to Paris on Burbank Boulevard. Wishing you and your wishing you and your family a very happy new year and we will see you soon um uh in the new year once we get through this whole pandemic yes sounds good love it thanks guys for having me thanks everyone for listening and i hope to see you soon thanks mike more to come your attention please (laughs) now loading on track number one for a trip around Walt Disney's Magic Kingdom. Skull Rock Podcast. All aboard. Your main street to the world of Disney. Wow. What a great, great storyteller. You're right. You're right, Dave. Mike is awesome. He really is. You know, he, he's really an incredible artist. And I, and I have to tell you, I think it's so inspirational uh, when uh, when he talks about how he got his job at Disney. I mean, to me, uh, any anybody who's just starting out in animation today really needs to listen to that story uh, because it's inspiring uh, it, 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 it's a great example of somebody not giving up, not being discouraged by, uh, being turned down or, you know, being given feedback, but who's actually taking those moments and gleaning the positive information from it and going off and listening to that information and improving and drawing and doing the work that uh, uh, was asked for uh, and eventually getting hired at Disney and having this incredibly illustrious, really illustrious 41-year career. I mean, incredible. It was so great talking to him. I, I, I had so many memories flashback of a lot of these projects, you know, because I, I worked in the effects department on rescuers down under. And, you know, I, I mean, I was, I, I had so much fun working on some of these pictures. So it's always great to bring these guests on. And, and Mike is, uh, like I said, what a great storyteller. I love it. And I'm so happy it was there to help document it and, and be there for those questions, uh, for those answers, because what amazing stories indeed. I love it. Well, I think that's it. I mean, we are barreling to the end of 2020 and yes. good riddance to this year. <laughs> I think every one of us wants this to, just to be over and get 2021 going yes. uh, because it's gonna be, it can only get better, Al, John. That's what I'm we saying. We can only go up from here. Yes, sir. Absolutely. So thank you for that, Dave. Uh, it's been a, a great year for us in this uh, very first few months of, of kicking off this show skull rock podcast so so thank you for uh, having me be part of it and i'd like to thank our listeners for coming along for the ride we're getting bigger and better every single week and that's all because of you and your support so thank you so much but uh, i encourage everybody if you're a fan of uh, our show disney and pop culture please subscribe to the show i know you may have just stumbled upon us um, but we would love for you to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and give us a like a follow and maybe even a review that would be certainly helpful especially on uh, uh, platforms like itunes uh, that would be great you can also follow us on once again all our social media facebook twitter and instagram 
and be sure to uh, email us as well. Aljon, A-L-J-O-N at Skull Rock Podcast or Dave at SkullRockPodcast.com. And uh, as we ring out this year and we look forward to the new year, Dave, do you have any final words? Well, I'm not ringing out this uh, old year. I am kicking this old <laughs> year out the door. Uh, that's all I can say. Uh, I want to wish everybody a happy uh, and safe and healthy uh, new year. Uh, celebrate safely, please. Uh, let's get let's get this pandemic behind us. And Al John, uh, I hope you and Kristen and the kids have a wonderful uh, New Year celebration at home. Uh, Nancy and I are going to watch the ball drop uh, in Times Square uh, on television at yes. nine o'clock uh, Pacific time, yes. uh, midnight Eastern time, and uh, we're going to pop a bottle of champagne, have a couple glasses of champagne, and just sit in our warm, cozy home uh, in our little bubble, uh, free of virus. Same, same here. And and by the way, wish. Please send our wishes to your mom celebrating her 90th. That's an amazing milestone. I will. I'm going to be posting something later this week on uh, social media with some pictures of my mom. I think that people, when they look at a picture that I have of her from a year ago, they're going to be flawed, uh, really flawed. That's awesome. Uh, by, by the fact that uh, she's turning 90 because she doesn't look it. I'll tell you that. Well, you're as only as young as you feel, right? And, and so happy it. birthday, mom. I appreciate that. And uh, thank you all for listening to us here on Skull Rock Podcast. Have a happy, happy and new safe year. new year. Happy New Year. I'm Al John Goh, co-host of the Disney List Podcast, as heard on Sorcerer Radio, as well as Skull Rock Podcast, here with my wife, Kristen. Hello. Hello. You are an earmarked agent who books Disney travel, vacations for people all the time. Give our listeners a reason why they want to give you a call instead of just booking a trip by themselves. Well, I can do all of the legwork for them. I have expertise. I've been to the Disney parks well over a hundred times. So they've got that knowledge at their hand as well as it saves them time and money. Where can people get in touch with you so that they can book their next Disney cruise, Disney park trip, adventures by Disney? They can contact me at themeparksandcruises at gmail.com. I'm Kristen Hetzel, vacation planner, world traveler, Disney foodie, and theme park fan. I'm Al John Go. I'm the husband who's also Disney, Star Wars, and Marvel Comics fan. And together, we host the Disney List Podcast. Every week, you'll hear us list our favorite things about Disney theme parks, films, shows, travel, Marvel, and Star Wars in a top 10 list, rankings, and more. That's an impressive list. Subscribe to the Disney List Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, or your favorite podcast platform. You can even stream us on Sorcerer Radio at srsounds.com and check out our live shows on Facebook, the Disney List Podcast. Visit thedisneylist.com.